Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. By the way, after the reading of the word, I had somebody ask me one time, hey, what does everybody say after the person reading the word says the word of the Lord? Uh, we actually say thanks be to God as an acknowledgement that God's word is a gift from him to us so that we might know him. So I just mentioned that to say, if you ever have questions, if you're ever like, hey, why do we do this? Ask those. Sometimes we do things or use language that you might not understand or that might be churchy or whatever, and we don't want to do that. We want to be clear. So always feel free to ask those kind of great questions there. So would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. We we come in a lot of different places, but we are here because, well, you've, you've brought us here in some way, uh, whether it was kicking and screaming, whether it was um, with a lot of fear and trembling, or whether it was with great eagerness of heart, or whether it's just what you do on a Sunday morning. Lord, you have brought us here, and so I pray now that you would feed us with your word, that you would speak into our lives, and especially in this time where our culture is in great upheaval, and there is great division, and there's lots of fear about what the future holds, Lord, we really need your encouragement, we need your hope, and we need to be reminded of what you've called us to as your people. So would you come and speak to us today? Come and uh, revive us 
and encourage us and uh, compel us to follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, I have a question to get us started this morning. Do any of you know what's happening on Tuesday of this coming week? What's happening? Election day, right. How could we miss it? Right? And uh, I'm sure every kid in here knows that. I mean, my kids know the names of the candidates and all of this stuff. And I'm like, did that? when I was your age, did I know that? It, it seems like right now our culture is just so inundated with uh, tension and anxiety and, and uh, heat over this election and what's going to happen. And I want to talk about that this morning. Uh, I want to talk about what's going to happen on Tuesday. I want to talk about even more importantly about what's going to happen after that. And uh, I'm a little nervous doing that uh, because I know that we are so prone to think in sound bites, and we've been taught of how to think about this. And of course, there's only two ways to think about it, right? It's either red or blue. And if you're not saying this, then you must be on the other side. And so we've had other people define the conversation for us. And so I'm a little nervous that what I say will be misinterpreted. Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I don't know how you should vote. Quite frankly, I don't know how to vote. And a few of you might want to come see me after and tell me how to vote. I've already had many people reach out and say, hey, listen, uh, I had somebody, somebody I respect greatly the other day reach out to me and said, hey, I heard you weren't going to vote. I have something that will help you out. It's, a, it's an article written by an evangelical leader about who you ought to vote for. And I'm like, what? who said I wasn't going to vote? I, I think it's very important to vote. Uh, but it's, it, it's right now, it's so torqued up. Everybody is so worried and afraid. And we know that our culture is changing very rapidly, right? Our, tr- our culture is moving from a culture that, by and large, has accepted and embraced uh, Judeo-Christian values. We've, uh, as the church, as followers of Jesus, have enjoyed the privilege of living in a country that largely affirms many of our values. And that is a great gift. But as we know, things are rapidly changing right now. And what I see as I'm looking at uh, believers, as I'm looking at the church, as I'm looking at voices, is I'm seeing lots of fear. In fact, we're being taught to fear. Uh, It's kind of this politics of outrage Right? We're, we're always being inundated by uh, a story or uh, a message that's intended to move you to outrage. Whether it's right or left, it doesn't matter. Both sides are doing the same thing. But the goal is if you're not outraged, then there's something that's wrong with you. And as believers, we're afraid. We're fearful. Uh, we're picking sides. Uh, we're, we, are, we have bought in to the idea that what will fix our country, what will fix our culture, uh, what will cause us to flourish is to have uh, the right kind of political party in power, to have the right kind of political leaders in position, to have the right kind of policies and laws that are passed. And if that takes place, if that happens, I mean, the stakes are so high, if that happens, then, then our future will be good. And if it doesn't, then our future will be in decline. We've been taught to buy into this. 
Now, don't hear me saying that politics don't matter, that you should not vote. I think you should vote. I think it's very important to vote. I think it's very important for Christians to be engaged in politics. But what is the issue that I'm trying to get at here? And I think it's that we have come to put our hopes in political movements, in political positions, in political power. We, we have come over a number of years, it didn't happen overnight, but we have come to believe that as the church, we need to band together and we need to take stands. And if we band together and if we get the right people in positions of power, then our culture will be healed. And I think that is wrong. I don't think that's how culture is changed, especially as God goes about changing culture. And, and what I believe has essentially happened is that we have made an idol out of political action. An idol is anything that you look into, that you look to ultimately for your security, for your future, and for your hope. And whenever that thing that you're looking to for your security begins to be threatened, what happens? You're seized with fear and anger and outrage. You see, our response in this time as the church is a great indicator that we have come to put our hopes in political action. Again, it matters, but it is not our hope. Our hope is in the living God. He alone can change culture. He, do you know that Scripture says He puts people in positions of power for His purposes, and when He's done with them, He removes them. He's in power. We have nothing to fear. So what I want to do this morning is not so much give you my opinion, but just look at Scripture and look at what does God say to us? What does He call us to? What is our mission in the world? We need to be very clear on that. What is he calling us to as his people? And what we see in this passage, we see it all over, is that he is calling us to be a particular kind of people that lead particular kind of lives. And it is through the quality of our lives that he reveals himself in the world, that we bear witness to his coming kingdom, and that people are attracted to God. So we need to focus on us. As we focus on us, God will take care of this culture and his world. And that's what hopefully we'll see in our passage. And if I make you mad today, I might have already done that, I would just ask that we be able to sit down and talk about it, which is not happening a lot right now in our culture. For folks that disagree or hear something that you don't like, we're shouting at each other, we're talking to our own tribe about it rather than talking to people that we disagree with. And listen, in the church, we got to model a different way to be than that. I think we see that in our passage. So let's jump in together as we're in 1 Peter. Uh, we're beginning in chapter 11, but it's important to know what's come before this. Uh, before this verse that we begin with, Peter has been speaking to the church, and he's speaking to believers here, and he is reminding them of their identity. And he has a number of terms to remind them of who you now are. This is your identity. This is who you are. And then as we move into verse 11, he's going to talk about, now here's how you live. Here's what you're called to do. That is always the order of the Scriptures and of Christianity. 
See, Christianity is not you get an identity by behaving in a certain way, by doing the right things, by living up to a certain law, to certain works. That's what we think. That's what essentially religion is. I obey, I do these things, and therefore I get a status with God. I get acceptance with God. But the gospel reverses that. It says you get an identity by grace. Simply by embracing Jesus, you get a new identity. You get a new status. You get an acceptance before God that is not earned by you, but conferred upon you by what He has done. And out of that new identity, you live a new life. Do you see the order matters so very much? So it begins with identity. Who are we? Verse 9, you are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. That's who we are. That is our identity. And now out of that, He's going to say, here's how you're to live. Verse 11, here's our mission. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Do you see the end goal there? Like he talks about how we're to live. He's going to begin to move into very specific instructions about how we're to live our lives as followers of Jesus. He's going to begin to move into that. But did you see in the passage what the goal of our behavior, our conduct, our life is? The goal is mission. Did you see that in verse 12, second part of verse 12? That they, meaning pagans as he says here, those who are unbelievers, those who are outside the church, that they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day that he visits us. The goal is that those outside the church may see the quality of our lives, may see the hope lived out in our lives, and they may be attracted to God, that they may be brought to glorify Him on the day that He comes to renew all things. That is our goal. And the means to that goal, the means to that end, is how we live our lives. His mission is ethics. In other words, how we live, a focus on ourselves, who are we going to be, is the main aspect of our mission. Not kind of what kind of strategies we use, not what kind of uh, powerful um, movements we become a part of. At the heart, it's who are we? Who are we going to be in the world? And that is what God uses to draw people to himself. Now, let's see what he says as he begins to describe this life. What is critical to this life of attracting people to God? Look at what he says right off the bat in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Uh, in the version that Kim read, it said uh, exiles. Uh, we see in other places it says uh, as sojourners, uh, pilgrims, uh, you see, right there, he is reminding us that our home is not in this world. You're strangers here. You're aliens here. This is how you're to live in this world. You're to live as if it's not your home. 
You're, you're to live as if you belong to another country, another kingdom. You're citizens of another kingdom. Even as you live here, even as you are in this place that God has put you, you are to live not as if I'm a part of this place, not as if my identity is fully rooted here, but my identity is belonging to another kingdom, to another country, to a whole other way of living, a whole other set of values. We are to live in this world as if we're not home, as if we're exiled. You know what an exile is? It's someone who belongs to one country and they're living in another. That is who we are. If you've ever been to another country, you know that you, as you come into another country, you don't expect that country to do things and see things exactly the way that you are, the way that you do in your home country. If you ever traveled to another country, and as you go there, you realize very quickly, hey, everything's different here. People value different things. People eat different things. They talk in different ways. This is very different from where I'm from. But what you don't do, unless you want to get sent home really quick, is show up and demand that everyone be like you. Sometimes Americans do that overseas. And sometimes they don't like us very much whenever we do that. If you ever traveled overseas, you know that's a big no-no. Don't just show up and expect everybody to be like you. Because you're in a foreign place that has foreign values. The same thing would happen if, uh, if I were to come to your home. Say you have me over for dinner, you have me into your home. What if I came into your home and I said, you know what, I appreciate you having me over here, but uh, I'd like to talk to you about the way you're raising your kids. I notice some things I don't like here. Also, just some values that your family's practicing. We need to talk about those, your decoration style. Um, let me tell you how I'd do it. If we can go about changing some of these things. What would be the reaction of you in your home? <laughs> Leave now. Your time's up here. You see, if you remember that you're a stranger, that your home is not here, that you belong to another place, it changes your whole posture in that place. You don't have this expectation that everyone is going to live like me or uh, adopt the same values as me. It gives you a patience. It gives you, uh, you, instead of being a master, like, hey, you need to do this, you become more like a servant, like I'm here to serve you. I'm here to learn from you. I'm here to be present with you. It's a totally different mindset. It's the mindset of a minority rather than a majority. In essence, Christianity flourishes best when it's a minority. We see that in the early church. The early church, it was a minority uh, community within the powerful Roman Empire. And what's amazing to see is that the early church, the early Christians as they're living in this culture that is drastically different than their own. And let me tell you, no matter how bad it gets in America, no matter how bad you think it is, it doesn't even get close to Rome. But yet here they were, living in the midst of a hostile culture, being persecuted, being hated, being accused of all kinds of things. And do you know what was the effect of the early church? As they were the church together, and the ways that they loved one another, and the ways that they served the poor, the ways that they live, the quality of their lives. You know what was the effect? Powerful cultural transformation. Christianity thrived as all of these things were opposing it, as it was literally the opposite of everything around them. Christianity thrived. But then what ended up happening? 
Christianity went from the minority to the majority. How did that happen? Well, there was a Roman emperor named Constantine who was converted to Christianity. And what he decided is, oh, I know what we need to do in order to rule my kingdom. I'm going to make it. I'm going to mandate Christianity as the state religion. And guess what happened to the church? It became irrelevant. It became corrupted. It went into decline. You see, we've got to have the mindset of being a minority, of being a people who are countercultural, who are living out a picture of a kingdom that is not yet, that is still future, that is coming. This is our calling to bear witness to a coming kingdom. Now, what does that look like? How does he describe that looking like? Very next words, he says, Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Some of our uh, translations might say abstain from passions of the flesh or lusts of the flesh. Whenever we hear that, we think of like bodily appetites. We think of sexual sin or things like that. It certainly includes those things, but it's far more broad. It's more of the desires of our sinful nature that include not only those those things that we need, tend to single out, like uh, sexual sin and, and honky-tonking and stuff like that, but it would also include like greed, pride, using power to exploit other people. Those things, very much the same. And so Peter is saying here, listen, the, the primary battlefront, okay, if you want to be cultural warriors, the battle is not primarily out there against those people out there. The battle for you is in here. It is our sinful nature that is waging war against our soul. That's where our battle begins. As we go to war on on the sinful brokenness in our own hearts. So to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans, that though they see you as doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. To live such good lives among those who do not believe. The question is, what does that life look like? What are the good life that we're to live that would be a powerful attraction to the world, to the living God? Well, I think as we think about what, what is most important about the lives that we live out, we think about, again, we think about keeping our nose clean. Right? Squeaky clean, good people, avoid anything bad in any way, you know? Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with those who do, right? We're, we're uh, no honky-tonking, no partying. That's essentially what it means, and that might certainly be a part of that. But I want you to see what he describes as the good life that he's talking about here in the passage. And it's an absolute shocker. We would never guess this. If you didn't look at the passage, I'd say, all right, we're going to try to figure out what What Peter is saying is the good life that we're called to that will most picture God to our world. We'd never guess this. Look at what he says. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong. What? You, Peter, you mean the essence 
of the good life that I'm called to, the life that will put on display the gospel of Jesus more than anything else, is submission to authorities? That, listen, we're in a culture where that is no good. We don't like submission. That's a four-letter word. What do we do in our culture to authorities? We gather the mob and we shame them and bring them down. We crush them, right? We love to crush authorities. And if you serve in a position of authority, if you are a, a, a high school teacher, if you're an administrator, if you're a public servant, you know this. You're always nervous that you're going to do one little thing that the wrong person is not going to light and they're going to form a mob and they're going to come with torches and you're going down. We don't like authority in our culture. We rebel against authority, right? We're a democracy. We love to crush leaders. Peter, what are you talking about? Submit to authorities? That is scary. That is radical. That is countercultural. You really want to stick out like a sore thumb in this culture as Christians? Go around submitting to authority. All right, and it's, 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 he, he talks about public servants, those who are in public positions of authority, and he goes all the way down to like your boss. Right? He goes over in verse 18, and he talks about slaves and masters. In that day, it was the primary socioeconomic arrangement. Today, that's like employers and employees. Submit to your employer. You really want to put Jesus on display? Go submit to your employer. Go submit to the officials in this community. Not just whenever they're doing it right, but even whenever they're doing it wrong. And see, we don't like to submit because we know that whenever I submit, I become vulnerable. Right? In order to submit, I have to give up my rights. I have to give up control. I, if I'm submitting to someone, I'm allowing myself to be mistreated. And we don't want to do that. We want control. This is radical stuff to submit ourselves to others. He gets even more practical about what it looks like. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Now just to think about the way that we talk. I mean, submission, one aspect of submission is the way that we speak about those who are over us in authority, the way that we speak about those with whom we disagree. Oh my gosh, is there one that more accuses me and all of us than this? How do you talk about people who are on the other side of the political aisle? How do you talk about the people in your life that are getting it wrong or making your life hard or bringing injustice into your life, mistreating you? How do you talk about those people? We crush them. But here Peter is saying, show honor and respect to everyone. Have this attitude of honor, of love. See, if we're going to submit, it's going to bring suffering into our life. Right? That's what Peter says in verse 19. He talks about if you're going to submit to your master, if you're going to submit to your employer, you're probably going to suffer. And look at what he says in verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. That's exactly what he's talking about. Suffering, unjust suffering, which will come if you submit. And look at the last thing it says in verse 17. Honor the king. Honor the emperor. 
Do you know who was the king whenever Peter wrote this? Who was the emperor of Rome? Nero. Have you ever heard of Nero? He was one of the most evil leaders the world has ever known. And he was, he was a madman. And he was absolutely hostile to Christians. He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. He put Christians into the Roman Colosseum and released wild animals on them for sport. He would light Christians on fire and put them up on poles in his courtyard for entertainment. That's who Peter is talking about here. That's radical. That's, that's impolite to even say out loud. Honor the king? Well, he doesn't deserve it. That's the point. You see, because Peter says, live as free men. You need to remember something. Your identity <laughs> is not what the, the power that someone exerts over you. Your identity is not some, what someone says about you or how they treat you. Your identity is freedom because God himself has set you free and you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's where your identity is. You're rich beyond imagination. And no, what no one can do in your life can identify you, can, can be the ultimate reality about who you are. You are free. Live as free men. But do not use that freedom to indulge the sinful nature, to go do whatever you want to do. Use that freedom to be servants of God. We're to be servants. That is the posture of our life, to serve everyone, not just those that we admire, just not, not just those who benefit us in our life, but to have the posture of servants, to respond to injustice with love, with submission, to use our words not to tear down, but to honor other people, especially, especially when they're unjust and they're evil. This does not mean that we don't speak out against evil. That's not what it's talking about. This does not mean that we obey an authority whenever they are commanding us to disobey God. We have one authority, and it is God. And the only reason that we submit to the authorities in the world is because God has put them there and it's a way of submitting to Him. Submit. Suffering. This is our mission in the world. It's radical. If He could call them to submit to Nero, would He call us to submit to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or what other ever person gets in a position of authority in our life? Or even the local people. The people that are in positions of authority in the school system, in our community here, in our Congress. Does it include that? Absolutely. None of them are as bad as Nero. So here's the question. Why? Why is this our mission? Why are we called... To live this way, why is submission and, and going low and releasing control and responding to injustice with love and embracing suffering and being a servant, why are these the primary characteristics of our calling as His people? Why? Because this is the most important part. Because of the cross. It's exactly where Peter goes in the passage. Look at verse 21. As he begins in the passage... 
He's just called us to a particular way of living, and then he goes straight to the gospel to root it. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Submission. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That is beautiful. Peter says, here's why you live this way. Because of the cross. Because you see, the cross is what has rescued us. The cross is what is to now define all of our life. Okay, if you look at the cross, the cross is the ultimate picture of suffering, of injustice, of shame, of death, of laying down your life. On the cross, the one who had ultimate power, ultimate power, who by his very word could strike down all of his enemies, made himself vulnerable and hung on a cross for us. The one who bore no shame, the one who was perfect, the one who was sinless, took shame upon himself on the cross. The one who was not under the curse, who had perfectly obeyed God in every way, himself was cursed so that we might go free. The one who had ultimate power. There's an amazing scene whenever they come to arrest Jesus. And one of, his, uh, one of his disciples whips out a sword and he's like, let's do this here, you know. Let's fight it out here. We're going to make a stand. We're going we're to win through force. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you think I could call on 10,000 legions of angels like that and lay waste to the whole place? His power was not a problem. But you see, that's not how God wins. How does he win? How does he overcome evil? How does he overcome death? By enduring it himself and going out the other end. By taking upon himself our curse. You see, brings, Peter brings it right back to us. He himself bore our sins, our sins, in his body on the tree. He's making a reference back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, to be hung on a tree was a curse. It was to be a curse. He wants you to make that connection to say he was cursed for us who deserve the curse. The cross is not just what saves us. It is also to be the pattern of our lives. Sometimes we think the cross is something that he did for me and so now through that I get to do whatever I want to do. I get to be rich. I get to be healthy. I get to be successful. We would never say that out loud, but so often that's what we believe. But Peter says, no, 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 no. He did that in order that you might follow him in the way of the cross. That is to be the pattern of your life. And it is as we submit and lay down our lives and respond to injustice with love, kind of reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As we do that, what happens? We put the gospel, the cross, on display. It's seen in our life. 
As we walk in the way of the cross, the world sees the cross in our lives. The cross is the pattern of our lives. To submit, to lay down our lives, to honor, to serve. Because that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So the cross is the pattern of our life. It's also the power. It's also the power. Where do we get the power to live in this way? Because this is costly. To die to myself, to give up my rights willingly? How do we do that? Look at the cross. That's what Peter does. Takes him back. Do you remember? He bore your sins. We were like sheep going astray. The issue is not those people out there. The issue is me. I was his enemy. I was the one hurling those insults upon him. And what did he do? He did not strike me down, but laid down his life in my place. Does that move your heart? To the degree that you see it was my sin that put him there, that I'm the biggest sinner in the room, to the degree that that's real in you, and you see the cross is to the degree to which it will create joy in your life. The cross is to be our power. That's why the cross is not just how you get into the Christian life. It's not just the thing to believe and accept at the beginning of the Christian life. It's how you grow. It's how you progress. It's how you're changed. So the main thing in closing it's not our vote. The main thing is not our vote. Electing the right people, it's a good thing, but it's not going to change our culture. The main thing for those of us who are followers of Jesus is to be the people he's called us to be, to walk in the way of the cross, to be a people who are so defined by what Jesus has done for us that it shapes everything about our life, how we see all of our relationships, how we see our political interaction, how we talk about other people, let the cross be the lens that defines everything you do because it's our identity and it is our hope and it's our life. Today, we're not going to discuss the sermon. We usually do that. We stop the sermon. We have time to discuss. Today, we're going to the table. We're going to take communion together and I think it's perfectly fitting. You might have a lot of questions, but our hope as we go into Tuesday, and as we go into the rest of our lives and our future, our hope is at the table. It's Jesus. It's the cross. Communion pictures the cross. That's what's at the center. Not what we're to do. Not, not what we're to go out and create or what strategy or any of that stuff. It's what Christ has done for us. That's the center of the table. And as we come and as we feed upon him and we're reminded of the cross and rooted in the gospel, we're changed. We're energized to live for him. So as we come to the table, we always begin with a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance. If you'll take out your song books, if you'll turn to the second page, there's a number of prayers of confession here. We pray these together as a way to corporately together make our confession to the Lord. I'll give you a few moments to pray silently and confess your sins to the Lord. But we confess our sins because it is in realizing our need of grace that grace becomes powerful and active in our hearts. So as we come to the table, we're going to confess our sins together.
Let's pray the second prayer on page three in your psalm books. We're going to pray it out loud together as one. Merciful God, you pardon all who truly repent and turn to you. We humbly confess our sins and ask your mercy. We have not loved you with a pure heart, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not done justice, loved mercy, or walked humbly with you, our God. Have mercy on us, O God, in your loving kindness. In your great compassion, cleanse us from our sin. Create us in a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and sustain us with your bountiful spirit to the glory of your name and for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now take a few moments to confess your sins privately to the Lord as we prepare to come to his table. Father, as I look at the words of Peter, I see that I am that man. I have not lived in the way that you have called me to live. I have not walked in dependence and trust upon the finished work of Christ. And I have believed and searched for an identity that is outside of Christ so very often, Lord. Lord, we repent. We've not been the church that you've called us to be. We've run after security and identity and safety and life in so many other places, Lord. We confess to you our great need of your grace. And Lord, we rejoice as we come to experience again the riches of your grace. I pray that you would send your spirit as we come to your table, that you would set apart the bread and the wine for your holy use. And that you would use it to deepen our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. That we would encounter the grace and love of Jesus in a fresh way. And that that would energize us in the power of your spirit to be the people you've called us to be. Come and meet us at your table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat from it, all of you. And in like manner, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim and show forth the Lord's death until he comes. A few instructions about coming to the table. Uh, If you are not a follower of Jesus... If you are not sure of where you are, uh, if you're in a place of unrepentance and hardness of heart, uh, the scriptures encourage you not to come and take of communion. It would be to just go through a ritual, and that's dangerous. Um, if, If today you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, we're thrilled you're here, don't feel out of place or anything, 
Uh, you can remain in your seat and sing. We're going to sing a lot of songs. Uh, consider uh, what we saw in the passage and who Jesus is. If you want to get together and talk about what that means to, to embrace Jesus, believe in him, I'd love to do that. Uh, or if you'd even like to come forward and be prayed for, uh, we'd love to do that as well. If you come forward and you want to be prayed for and don't want to take of communion, just put your hands down like this and it'll let the elders as they're serving you know not to serve you the elements. But don't feel out of place. You're in the right place. Consider Christ, especially in this time. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, not perfect people, because nobody would come to the table, those who are broken, who recognize their need of grace and are looking to Christ rather than yourself, come and feast upon him. For he loves to come and to feed his people with himself and pour His grace into our life. So come with joyful, expectant hearts and meet Him at this table. Musicians, if you guys want to go ahead and come up first. Uh, we have gluten-free crackers, if you'd like that, instead of bread. And uh, we also have wine in the cup and juice in the smaller cups. If you'd like wine, just let us know.